She used to come to me often, uh, and, and still does, and tell me some of the things she's learned from a, a pastor named Dick Lucas, who's a, I think he's about 19-hour pastor in the UK. And we used to talk about his sermons and, and things. And so I met, while I was there, one of the speakers who uh, was trained and taught by Dick Lucas for a, a little while. And this is where the story kind of gets to, to everybody. He says while he was working with, uh, with uh, Mr. Lucas, he would have the, the, the students come together and they had to give a sermon or a devotion or uh, explain a, a text for him. And he says one time he was, he was up there, he, he gave his, his sermon about the text and he thought he did a, a great job on it. And uh, Dick Lucas, who was sitting there listening to him and, and thinking about it, said to him in this gentle voice, that was lovely, sir, but you've completely missed the point. So hopefully this morning, uh, our sermon will not just be lovely, but will also not miss the point, because we come to a very important passage of scripture or verse of scripture. We're going to read together from uh, John chapter 3, verse 12. We're going to read through verse 21 uh, for the context and then spend our time looking at John chapter 3, verse 16. It says here in John chapter 3, verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God, did not send, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil." For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now before we have a word of prayer, um, you can look in your, your Bible there, or you can look up on the screen here. Our like is all together, this is going to be our text this morning, but all together we'll reread John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word to contemplate one of the great gems of Scripture. We pray indeed, dear God, that it would shine brightly to us this morning. Lord, indeed, may the Spirit use these words powerfully in the lives of believers and unbelievers alike this morning. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. This is one of the, or at least it was one of the most well-known verses in all of the world. There's a time when most people would know what this verse was. You could even just show the reference and people would have a vague idea of what that reference was about, that God loved the world. And there was at least that, that connection to it. People had a, enough knowledge of what John 3.16 was to know its intent. 
There was a reason that this verse was so well known and had such a, a big and important place within the life of the believers and within the life of the church because it's a simple verse to remember. It flows very easily and, and it, it contains the, the great and powerful gospel message in just a few statements. And so you could very easily present the gospel in its fullness and be able to explain it very easily with just these few words. But these days, most people wouldn't know what you were talking about if you just said John 3.16 or wrote it and they saw it. They would probably know it was from the Bible, but very few people these days would have really any connection to know that John 3.16 said anything about God's love or eternal life. We've lost that, that knowledge within our society. In fact, not only is the verse not well known anymore, the truths that this verse suggests and the truths that this verse teaches us are almost completely unknown in our society and even mocked for what these verses teach us. You know, how many people have we heard saying things like, if there is a God, he certainly doesn't seem loving, which contradicts what John 3.16 tells us. This verse, John 3.16, expresses a truth which shakes our world's philosophies to the core turns it all upside down. It is the opposite of everything we see and understand and believe and think as natural people. And the same was true when Jesus spoke these words to Nicodemus that night, which is where they come. These, these words that Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, that God loves the world and that believing in Jesus was the way to the kingdom, to eternal life, was something that Nicodemus had never considered had never thought of it. it, was the opposite of what he had grown up to. It was the opposite of what he was expecting Jesus to say to him, that, that, that Jesus would say to him, the kingdom can only be accessed, that eternal life can only be accessed by believing in Jesus, was not what Nicodemus was expecting that night. It was the, the opposite. We looked in verse 14 and 15 uh, two weeks ago when we were here that we must be born again. That's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. We must be born again. And so that is the reason that verse 14 and 15 tells us that Jesus must be lifted up on the cross. He must be lifted up on the cross because we must be born again. So why did we find that Jesus must be lifted up? Well, there were two main reasons Jesus must be lifted up. One is the circumstances of man. That is that we are in sin. And we are dying from our sin, just as the serpents were killing the people of Israel because of their sin, so we are dying because of our sin. And the second reason that Jesus must be lifted up is not just the circumstances of man, but also the character of God. The character of God. Why must Jesus do this? Why must Jesus be lifted up? Why must he die? Because, verse 16 tells us, the God of the Bible loves the world. We must be born again. So Jesus must be lifted up on the cross because God loves the world. The God of the Bible loves. It is true, and it is an absolute essential truth of Scripture, that we are sinners and that we are destined for judgment because of our sin. But that truth that we are sinners and destined for judgment, and deserving of judgment, does not mean that we are without value, that we don't have value in this verse. These verses, this verse particularly, verse 16, tells us 
that God deeply and truly loves. He does deeply and truly love. The gospel is the good news of God's great love. Now, I haven't given notes this morning. You can take notes as you want. I have a simple outline, but mostly because I want us to focus on what it's saying and think through it ourselves and understand this and not be worried about filling in a blank. But let's start with the simple truth that is here at the beginning. God loves. God loves. That's what our verse tells us. For God so loved the world. The love of God is a fact of his nature. You know, perhaps nothing is, uh, is questioned more often in this world than the fact of God's love. We talk about God's love and people speak of God's love, but it is perhaps questioned more often than anything. People doubt God's love because of the presence of suffering and evil in this world. If indeed God is loving, as so many of the critics say, then why is there suffering and evil and wickedness in the world? That doesn't seem like a loving God. And that very question, that very doubt, arises from our rejection of the understanding that the world has evil and sin existing within it. So we reject one truth and then wonder why we don't see the other truth. People doubt God's love because he seems to them to be too restrictive and too demanding. God is love, then why doesn't he just let me live the way I live? Why doesn't he let me be who I want to be? Most people doubt God's love because they've never taken the time to look for themselves. Most people will say, well, God's not loving because we see this in the world or because of this and that. And very, very few have even bothered to look to see if God is, in fact, love as he says. But God, God constantly reveals himself in love. It is one of the great characteristics that runs through Scripture from beginning to end, that God loves we see it from the very moment in, in creation, and he creates, and when, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, and God creates for them and, and brings to them a redemption, a covering, and promises a future redemption. So from the very moment sin and, and wickedness enter into this world, God's love is seen and shown immediately. And he has not stopped showing his love from then on. Even the giving of the law, which so many people look at and say, well, that's not love. The giving of the law is a show of God's love. It tells us who God is. It tells us what God's expectations are. It leads us to see our need for Jesus Christ. It is an expression of love. We see the expression of God's love in his patience and his forgiveness through his people from, from time beginning to now. How slow he is to pour out his wrath on those that deserve it. And how quick he is to give forgiveness. The Bible, even the Old Testament, is filled with examples of God's love. John 3.16, our text verse this morning which we read, tells us of the ultimate expression of that love. The pinnacle of that love. This expression of love helps us answer all of those questions and all of those doubts that we have. 
We can find the answer to, to why God allows suffering and, 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 and why wickedness and, and evil and all that exists in the world by understanding what Jesus did in John 3.16. Christ's coming to earth, as he did here, is a loving act to ultimately deal with suffering and death and sadness and confusion. God is not the vindictive person that so many people think that he is. God is love. The fact of God's love is true. And the focus of God's love, we're told here, is the world. For God so loved the world. God loves the world. Now, clearly, this isn't a statement that everyone in the world will be saved. That's what we call universalism. That is, that in the end, no matter what you have believed about Jesus or, or God in this life, doesn't matter because in the end God will save all of them. Clearly, this is not a statement of that because he also speaks of condemnation and judgment to those that do not believe. So this isn't an expression that everyone will be saved. It is, however, an expression of the broadness of God's love. That God loves the world expresses how wide and broad the love of God is. Titus chapter 3 says, But after that the kindness and love our God of God our Savior toward man appeared. The Jews had come to deeply believe that God loved the Jews and despised the Gentiles, anybody who wasn't a Jew. And as Nicodemus sat there with Jesus, that is what he had learned, that is what he believed, that God loved the Jews and he didn't really love anyone outside of the Jews. You had to be a Jew to be loved. So as Nicodemus sits there and listens to Jesus say, God loves the world, Nicodemus's entire world is rocked. You mean God doesn't just love the Jews? That there are people outside of my own understanding that God loves? He's telling Nicodemus that God's love is broader than you can imagine. It encompasses those that we don't understand, that we, we can't see and imagine that God would love. But God loves Jews and Gentiles alike, and he will save people from every part of the world. This is a statement challenging our beliefs about love, about what love is, about why God loves, about who God loves. Is there, is there punishment for murder and stealing and adultery and, and all of those things? Yes, there is. There is punishment for all of that wickedness and for all of those things that God defines as sin. But does that mean that God cannot love? If indeed he is the one who said, this is wickedness, this is evil, and there is punishment for that, does that mean God cannot love? Of course not. That's absolutely not true. For as Paul says in 1 Corinthians to those who believed in Corinth, such were some of you. We were sinners. We were murderers. We were liars. We were adulterers. We were lustful thinkers. We were all of those things. But God loved and saved us from those things. It is God's love that calls us to repent of that wickedness. He calls us to escape from the consequences of that sin. So God's love extends to every people of the world. 
God's love extends to every type of people in this world. There's a, a great old hymn which begins with these wonderful lines. There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. That's what these words speak to us, that God loves the world, speaks to us of the wideness, the broadness of God's mercy and love. It is true, as you sit here this morning, God loves you. God loves you because God is love. He is the source of love. God's motive for giving his son is love. Why does he love us? Why does God love a people who rebel? God loves us because God is love. Love is his nature. 1 John 4 verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. John repeats that statement later, and he says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. You know, God is inspiring in so many ways. There are so many things that, that we look at God and, and inspire us with awe. We are overwhelmed by his omnipotence. We look at creation and we, we wonder in imagination at how God stretched out the heavens and created things. We look through microscopes and we see the beauty and the detail of everything that God has created and we are, are overwhelmed by his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. We, we rest in his omnipresence. We find comfort in the reality that God is everywhere at all times. And we find assurance in his omniscience. That is that God knows everything. We, we find strength in, in his wisdom and following his path. But no other attribute of God moves us so personally and so deeply like the love of God. His love dominates it flows through every other attribute he has. He is loving in every part of his being. He is love in his very godness. God doesn't love the world like we love the world. God loves the world in a way beyond our comprehension. He loves the world in a way that we cannot understand, that is beyond seeing. The glory and the wonder and the awe of this love is that this love is a divine choice that he makes. His love toward us is a divine choice that he makes. He doesn't love us in response to our nature. That I'm good enough or that I'm pleasing enough or that I'm, I'm beautiful enough for him to look at and to love. He doesn't love in response to our nature. And he doesn't love in response to our love. So God does not love me because I have shown that I love him. God doesn't love me because of my love to him. God doesn't love you because you wooed him. That you made him look at you with affection. God loves because he chooses to love. John tells us again in, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, 
We love him because he first loved us. I did not love God, and so God returned that affection. God loved me first. He decided to love me. God loves us because he sovereignly determined to love. He chose to love. Again, in in 1 John, John reiterates this point here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us even when we refuse to love him. He loves us when we refuse to acknowledge him. He loves us when we reject him and we mock him. And so, verses like we read earlier in our passage this morning in Romans 5, verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That word commendeth, we've heard it described in many ways. It's to to demonstrate, but it's not just to demonstrate. It's to... It's to see the the brightness of a star in the blackness of space. It's that this love shines so brightly that everything else around it pales away into nothingness. He shows his love, he demonstrates his love like the brightness of of a star in the darkness of space, like nothing you have seen before. God is love, and because God is love, God is loving. Forever expresses his love. His love isn't just a sentiment. It's a living, practical reality. 1 Corinthians 13. Even unbelievers read 1 Corinthians 13 at their weddings and places because the beauty that it describes of love. But why is 1 Corinthians 13, which speaks to us about love, so beautiful? Because what it tells us is it tells us what God's love is like. Our love for one another should be like that because that's how God loves us. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It is, it is beyond our comprehension. God loves you because he decided to love you. And God's love isn't fickle. It's not based on feeling. God does not ever fall out of love with you. That can never happen. His love is enduring. Listen to the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life you don't send your son to die for someone on a whim that's not something you do on the spur of the moment for someone that typically rejects you you will never see you have never seen God express remorse or lament For sending Jesus. He was never sorry he did it. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 it says. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. In Ephesians chapter 1. When when Paul is speaking to us about the glories of what Christ does. and, And works in our life. It says he saved us. And he makes us his children because it was his pleasure to do so. 
Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endures forever. His mercy, sometimes translated as steadfast love, a love which is a rock. It does not change. Believer, there is a reminder in this for us. We easily become hard and cynical in this world. It's easy to fall into the trap like Nicodemus and and those of the Jews that, that God only loves us and people like us. We need a deep love for people. And John, through the works of and the practices of Jesus, is going to show us this more and more as his gospel progresses. We need to deeply love people. The pastor of times before, R.A. Torrey, said, I would rather win souls than be the greatest king or emperor on earth. I would rather win souls than be the greatest general that ever commanded an army. I would rather win souls than be the greatest poet or novelist or literary man who ever walked the earth. My ambition in life is to win as many as possible. God loves. The second big truth we see in John 3.16 is this. Because God loves, God gives. God gives. In his giving of love, God's love is perfect. His love is perfect, and this is a fact of his character. We are prone, as humans, to understand love through our human experience. So when we think about love or we wonder what the love of God might be like, we are prone to uh, understand experiences and things like, like love hurts. When we love, we expose ourselves. It makes us vulnerable. We have loved people and we have been let down. We have loved people and we have been abused in that relationship of love. The reality is that has been true even amongst the people of God. And so often when we think of love, and even when we interpret the love of God, we think of love through our human experience of love. And we we place into that the idea of loss and hurt and abuse far too often. But love is part of who God is, and God is perfect. And so his love is perfect. God's love does not fail like we do in love. When God loves, it does not fall short and cause hurt. When God loves, it does not uh, uh, bring boastful pride and cause abuse because God's love is perfect love. It is not faulty and frail and filled with sin like our love is. God's love is perfect because he is perfect. It's perfect in every way. It's without fault. It's complete. It's unending. It's unfailing. It is whole. His love is so deep and so full and complete that he sent his only begotten son. Begotten, special, unique, divine. We've mentioned this word before, to die in our place. You see, in his love, God held nothing back. Nothing back. When God loves, he loves completely. When we went through our short study of the love of God on Wednesday some some months ago, 
We, we looked into John 13 and saw that God loves to the full extent of his love. There is nothing left over. He gives it all. God's love is perfect, and God's love is priceless. Absolutely priceless. In Philippians chapter 2, these are verses which perhaps for many of us are familiar verses, but they speak of what happens in John 3 verse 16. In verse 6 of of Philippians chapter 2, it says, Who, that is Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here is the extent of God's love. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He is God. We've talked about that at the beginning of of John very, very often. That's what is expressed in Philippians chapter 2. It says, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is, he is God. His abode was in eternity. He is perfect in every way that God is perfect. And he left the glory of heaven. Jesus is the divine, eternal son of God. He left the majesty the glory, the worship, and the honor of heaven. And he left the glory of heaven, and Jesus came to earth as a man, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. He became like us. He came to earth as a man. Having left the glory of heaven, he clothed himself in humanity. He came into a fallen world that was selfish, depraved, wicked, greedy, angry. He came into a world that was hostile, and he lived amongst us in perfection, revealing the love of God every day as he taught, as he healed, as he comforted, as he corrected. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He came to earth as a man to die on a cross for your sin and humbled himself unto death, even the death of a cross. Ultimately, paying the penalty of your sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, died carrying the sin of the world on his shoulders. Again, from Romans 5, which we read earlier this morning, for when we were yet without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It said 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the beginning, the first few words are probably one of the first Christian creeds recited amongst the Christians as they gathered. Included in that first Christian creed are these words, for I delivered unto you first of all, or of top preeminence, that which I also received, how that Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. Are you a sinner? Yes, we all are sinners. How much does God love you even as a sinner? He died to pay the debt for your sin. God's love is preemptive. He did not love because we loved him, but because he loved us. God didn't wait for us to come to our senses. 
He didn't make a decision based on how we would respond to him. Say, well, I can see that they're going to love me, so I will love them. His love is not responsive. God took the initiative. God loved first. God provided for our salvation based on his eternal love. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. For by grace ye are saved. He did so even when we don't return his love. He did so knowing that the world he came into, for the most part, would reject his love. But this was his foreordained or premeditated plan. Him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by the wicked hands, have crucified and slain. God planned to show love. In eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit covenanted together that the Son would die for the sins of the world. God has always loved and always intended to show love. So as we think of what John 3.16 tells us, one, it tells us that God loves. It tells us that God gives, which results in the truth that God saves. God saves. God's love provides salvation. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He provides salvation from separation. Jesus came to save us from perishing, he says, that we should not perish. Perishing is a dark and tragic word. It's a word that should cause fear and trembling because that's what it's meant to do. It is a dark word. And it's true that we perish at the hands of God because of our sin. But the love of God is seen in giving us rescue from that judgment. Perish involves separation from God eternally. And the tragedy of that Because many will think, well, separation from God. What do I care if I'm separated from God? I don't care who God is. The tragedy of that is you were created to be with God. That is what we were created for. We were created to be with God and to enjoy him forever. To be separated from God is to live eternally without satisfaction, without peace, without wholeness. God's love provides salvation from separation. It provides separation from destruction. Perish means to destroy. It is the opposite of salvation. Salvation is to preserve. Perish is to destroy. He is saving us from destruction. It's not God's fickleness that punishes us. It's not his vindictiveness or his pettiness or his indifference We perish because of sin. That's why Jesus didn't come into this world to give us purpose. Or to show us how to please God. Jesus came into this world to pay our debt for sin. That's why he came. He came so that you could escape perishing. 
He came because God's love provides salvation from separation, from destruction, and from emptiness. He came to save from perishing and give eternal life. There's a great contrast here in those words, to perish and eternal life. Eternal life in the Bible is never just length of time. When the Bible speaks of eternal life, it speaks of a quality of life. It speaks of what it is to live for eternity. It is a quality of life. Eternal life is a life full of satisfaction. Eternal life is contentment. It is absolute fulfilling because it is the completion of what we were created to be. So to perish means to live in futility, to live in emptiness, to live in hopelessness. Jesus came to save you from an eternity of emptiness. Not just to give life, but to give a reason for living. Because God's love provides life for all who believe. Now this verse isn't telling us that all the world will be saved. It says, for God so loved the world. It's not that God will save all the world It's telling us that for all the world, there is only one Savior. There is no other way. For all the world, there is only one way to life. Jesus. Salvation from sin is a gift from God that comes only by believing God for it. Salvation doesn't come because you were born into the right nationality or because you were born into the right family, or born into the right time. Salvation comes to those who believe Jesus is the Savior. Salvation is available to you today if you believe Jesus. That's the very message Jesus was giving to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you will not find the kingdom, you will not find life because you are a Jew. And because you do the right things, Nicodemus, you will find life when you believe me, Jesus says. The same is true for us. The apostles repeat that in their sermons in Acts. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is eternal life. It is forever. For all those who believe, he gives eternal life. He promises to keep you forever. In fact, later in John, Jesus tells us these, the one who comes to me, I will by no means, or certainly not, never cast out. Eternity is no longer separation, destruction, and emptiness. Eternity is now joy of God's presence, preservation, life, and absolute satisfaction. God gives those who believe this glorious promise. For all who believe in him, we find these truths to be absolute. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The heart of John chapter 3 and verse 16 is a call to believe Jesus and find life. Without Jesus, you will perish. To perish, all you have to do is nothing. Do nothing with Jesus. Sit on the fence with him. Think he's a good guy, not a good guy, don't really care. Do nothing. Live life the way you are. That, perish. To find life. You don't need to work hard. You don't need to pray. You don't need to live a good life. To find life, you need to believe Jesus. Believe that God loves you. Will you believe him today? Believe that even though you are a sinner, that you've broken God's laws, that you haven't kept what he says he desires. He loves you. He loves you enough to give Jesus to pay the debt for your sin. Believe that in love, he will forgive your sin and give you eternal life. If you want to believe today, but you're unsure about what to do, maybe not certain about what it all means, please come and see me. Let me show you more of what John 3.16 means if you need to know. If you think you have believed, say, yes, I I, I think I've done this. I believe Jesus, but I want to make sure I understand it right. I want to make sure that that I'm believing the right things and that I've done this right. And you you, you think, yes, I, I believe Jesus, but I just, I'm not certain because it's new to me, then come and see me. And we will make sure you know for sure what you have believed. Believer, as we ponder John 3.16, the words of an old song come to mind. They've been running through my mind all week as I've prepared for this. I love to tell the story for those who know it best. Why? Because they seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing a new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. This is the theme of our life. John 3.16 may be familiar, but it never gets old. It's truth that can revive our hearts that can stir our passion and move our witness. And so it rises to places like it does the Apostle Paul, who says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the glory of your word. We thank you for simple gems like 
verse 16. And in these simple words, we find profound, life-changing truth. Please, O God, plant that truth deep within our hearts. Draw those who do not know you as their Savior to see the glory of your love for them, to believe for forgiveness of sins. And dear God, drive that seed so deeply in the life of the believer that it grows with great fruit in our lives. And passion for you and for your people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.